Everyone wants their Netflix. Everyone wants their Hulu. Oh, yeah. All right. Ready to go? You're ready. Yep. All right. Hmm. Starting from Fade to Black in five, four, three, two. What's up, everybody? This is the Red Band Podcast, your source for all film and TV related news and topics. I'm your host, Anthony King. And as usual, sitting to my left is my beautiful co-host, Adrian. And of course, sitting in Tango Control Room is our big man, Big Mike, Michael Cards. What's up with it? <laughs> <I'm just kidding. laughs> How are you guys doing tonight? Bob Saget's dead. <sighs> You, you gotta start off like that. Why you gotta do that to us? Come on. Why the year gotta start me off like that? I told you. I told you last time these things come in threes. But it isn't gonna be this close. We had Betty White, Sydney Poitier, and now Bob Saget. But it's too close. I told you they come in threes all the time. Too damn close. John mm-hmm. Madden is also dead. Yeah. It's some bullshit. <laughs> yeah. All right. America's dad is gone. Yeah. Let me let me fucking get a moment. <laughs> damn. Or take somebody least important. <laughs> Damn. Like we said, it should have been Weinstein. It, it should have been Weinstein. Why can't it just be the bad people? Because uh, it's never the bad. The, the bad people live the longest. We why, know that. Why can't Weinstein and Kevin Spacey be taken? Like we know those people will be living until like their 90s. Yeah. I mean, at least we got Betty White. She was almost 100. It was a blessing to have her yes. for that long. That's true. I mean, she was... Of the two oldest white ladies in America, she was the one that everyone liked. Oh, yeah. Or rather, oldest white ladies in the world. Mm -hmm. White lady. (laughs) The other one being the queen. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, no, it was was sad coming out for this week and then finding out with Bob Sag. It's 65. 65? Yeah. Dude, I still don't know how he died. Yeah, they haven't released released it. it Yeah. But they they ruled out any foul play uh, or drugs. Mm Mm-hmm. They ruled it might be a suicide of the two bullets found in the back of his head. <laughs> Can you imagine it was that severe? It probably was. Oh, man, that'll be nah, bad. I'm that'll not going to start rumors like yeah, that. Yeah, no, but no. You have them bullshit ones. I was like, oh, we're going to chalk this up as a suicide. Like, yeah, because from the angle. Well, they tried doing that with Betty White's death and tried blaming the, oh, COVID and everything. Yeah, or like the vaccine. She got a booster shot. She wasn't feeling so well. It was a stroke. Like, she was 99 yeah, years yes. old. She was old. Yeah, like, fuck off. Like, people should not be surprised if someone 99 years old dies. Yeah. That not, should not be a not surprise. surprise. It's not, not wanted, but it's, I mean, it's not a surprise. Yeah. Like, Bob Saget dying at 65. That yeah. was a surprise. Yeah, it look was, into that. Make sure, you know, if there was any underlying health issues, which I'm pretty sure it's going to be something like that. I mean, we're always talking about, you know, fortunate. I mean, this guy was early on, you know, drug use, so. Mm. Was he one, really? Uh, I think early, like. Everyone around that time. Yeah, everyone oh, around yeah. that time was. Come on. Yeah, so, I mean. Also, maybe heart condition. I don't know. We, yeah, we never know we never these know things. Until, until like a few weeks from now. Mm-hmm. Hold on. Wait. Sorry. All right. Michael. Continue there, Adrian. Look, Look at that. You're messing everything yeah, up, Michael. Sorry. The no. mood's ruined already. There we go. That's better. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's weird because I barely touched the gain and suddenly you are you sound great, Adrian. How <laughs> ah, it is. Told you that board's a little... You know, a little buggy. You got to get a new board. Yeah, that's, that's, that's something we got to get. We're getting a new board. Mm-hmm. I just got to make sure we get the exact one we need. See? Because I'm only doing this once. Can't there. Be easy. See? I didn't even turn it up. Yeah. I just tapped the top of it. Yeah, it's 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 
Dude, we had that board for it's so long. We've had that board for so dude, many so years. Many. It's, two it's, previous podcasts. That's yeah. how we had <laughs> I know it survived Damn. two previous podcasts. Damn. It is old and it's useful. Yeah. And we do, yes. yeah, we eventually need to get something new. Definitely a new board. But you know what's to be crazy? What's new that's been not really new, but it's becoming some of a resurgent is indie filmmakers that are mm-hmm. returning to the big screen, not really big screen per se, but they're getting a lot like, there was a time just a few years back where indie filmmaking was like almost basically dead and the highest like budget you can possibly even get is maybe like a couple, like 30, Mm $40,000. There's been like a reinsurgence into like putting money and backing indie filmmakers now again. And I've been noticing that's kind of been slowly happening since the beginning of the pandemic. A lot of studios been trying to invest and keep costs cheap by putting money into indie filmmakers. How do you guys feel about that? Uh, me personally, I love it. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I love yeah. the fact that you're giving the small guys a chance versus uh, someone yeah. who's been in the game for 20, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you got one guy who's, you know, who has passion for the for something he's doing. He could work it out, you know, with a couple thousand dollars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you think these things will come with consequences? I mean, these are usually deals spearheaded by studios to keep it's obvious it's obviously a thing to keep production costs yeah down of yeah. course you can't fill theaters as much as you can so you got to move everything to online streaming yeah but of course you're not going to get as much money for online streaming as we saw what happened with warner brothers all last year yep yeah so i feel like this is more of a thing like well let's just go to the cheap end and you know spend a little bit more money on these indie filmmakers but not spend crazy buku money like we used to I mean, it's it's a it's always a huge risk when you do this. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the two movies that come to mind that I I'm aware that it's not a they're not considered small budget, mm-hmm. but where its origins is really tiny is like the Saw films. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. you know, it was a student film, mm-hmm. and the studios decided to give it a chance, mm-hmm. and now you got an entire franchise out of it. Yeah, then you got other filmmakers, which is uh, what's it called? The one it was a YouTube video about the one with the lights when uh, when you shut it off, lights ha- out. Mm. Yeah, lights out. So yeah. Which turned into a, a high budget film, not that great. <laughs> I mean, like I said, it's one of those things where you, yeah, it yeah. flips. You have a great clip that worked. I mean, the yeah. video itself is really cool. Good. Concept, yeah. The final but, execution, yeah, not that great. Maybe you shouldn't make it into a ninety three minute yes. film. But like I said, the other flip coin was like the Saw film. Yeah, uh, fifteen minutes turned into entire franchise. That gamble on. Uh, turning a small budget film yeah. into mm-hmm. something huge and then it just kind of flopping. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, with indie filmmaking, with the large studios, it's the same exact yeah. thing. But I feel yeah. like it's no longer such a big risk anymore since they're moving everything to like online streaming platforms. It's no longer, you don't get these terrible returns because you spent all this money trying to reserve theaters and pay all this money for marketing and getting it out there. Now you're going on a cheaper end. So I feel like even if a film that they spend money into doesn't do that great, it's not such a bad hit to them. Right. I think that's going to be a thing even after the pandemic and everything's over, then people are going to go back out to work and go fill theaters again. I don't know if studios want to return to that, if they're going to be making so much money off of this. They off, want off streaming. Yeah. If they, if they manage a way to still make money off streaming by investing into independent filmmakers and keeping budget costs low and then just striking higher, you know, deals with these platforms to get better returns. I don't think it's going to be with like out of everything that happens within 
California through all its many years. The film industry is like a cockroach. It finds a way to survive and thrive <laughs> oh, off no, it any environment. Oh, no, it does. It doesn't matter. A recession, Great Depression, it does not matter. They find a way to survive. Oh, no, it does. I mean, if you I mean just take just take a drive through LA mm-hmm. and I'm not talking about go down the freeways and just going around a circle. I'm not, I'm trying to literally go through the actually like near downtown, go through the streets. Mm-hmm. You'll find studio after studio, people filming pretty much almost every corner. It's no, it's going to thrive. <laughs> oh yeah. They're going to, they're going to find a way to thrive, but like, I'm excited for the fact that this gets us a chance as independent filmmakers to get our work out there. But I do worry at the same time, are there, unspoken deals going behind closed doors where these studios are having, you know, more oversight over projects. You know what I'm saying? Like because they're hiring on these, these like they're independent like, directors, they have more control over and say as to what they want in the movie. Yeah, yeah. They're like, you know, you don't have much say in the matter. Cause you know, this is your first time in the big league. So you just got to listen, you know, one of those situations. I think I, we kind of covered something like that before with like uh when you have, big name directors versus like small upcomers. Mm-hmm. Whereas like you have where you have names like Scorsese, you have ones like Stanley Kubrick, you have, you know, you have these huge almost monsters, these titans mm-hmm. of the film industry yeah. of directors where it's like studios that try to like put their input in and they just tell them to shut up. Yeah. Cause it's like, Oh, this is my movie mm-hmm. versus like ones that are upcoming. No namers. They're like, Oh, we want this in the movie. And they're like, Oh, well, I mean, uh, it makes sense. You know, it's your guys' name on the building and you're paying for it versus like Martin Scorsese is like, uh, hey, Marty, uh, we want this in the movies. Like, first of all, shut the fuck up. <laughs> but it's interesting because I've been noticing too, there is a lot of independent filmmakers even fighting back now. So just think they're about finding this. their voice. Yeah, they're, they're finding the voice. I mean, think about this. How many projects do you hear more often where you hear so-and-so director step down because of creative, you know, quote unquote, creative differences? I mean, you're quite you, a, you kind of know what happens when you hear that. Well, I mean, studio tried to put the input director said, uh, shut up. And then there's deal just broke down and probably someone quit or got fired. That usually how that things go. Mm-hmm. One of the bit, the ones I can, probably come first to mind was with, uh, was it, uh, Chris Miller and Phil Lord for, um, Han Solo. Yes. You know, where, how many films did they did before that? They did Lego movie and like one other film before that. So they're still new upcomers. Yeah. They moved over to the Han Solo project. And then it seemed like what the studio tried to say, no, you're gonna do this, this, this needs to have this. And you know, creative differences, they mm-hmm. stepped down, which, everyone still is like upset of what kind of creation those two guys would have made for a probably possibly a fantastic console film. Yeah. I, I think it comes down to like the, you know, the it's, Disney, you mm-hmm. know, wanted full control over every little aspect. Yeah. And they already had an outline set up like, nope, it has to be mm-hmm. done this way because we have other plans that's going to connect to this. Mm-hmm. No, and, I don't think Disney would have been like that intricate with it mm-hmm. or rather if they did, they had no idea what they were doing. No, no I think they were doing that because they thought, they thought they were doing what Marvel did pretty much. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, if Marvel could do it, we could do it kind of idea. That kind of idea. Yeah. yeah. But they couldn't do it. No, they couldn't. No, it, it really failed. But I mean, yeah. it's not even like Disney. You get that from like Warner Brothers. Yeah, no, you no, get no, you get that from, from everyone. Like you get that from like almost every major studio. Yeah. Now. I There's mean, it's always some kind of, you know, creative difference happens. Yeah. Uh-huh. But it's like, it's always have the studios. The major studios always have, you know, 
their input. Yeah. They, I mean, we always argue, I mean, we, so much we argue, but mm-hmm. they put the money into it. But at the same time, it, you know, too many hands in the cookie jar, you know, that yeah, situation. It, it really ruins the film. It really yeah. does. All of a sudden your film becomes like a two and a half hour long product placement for like 40 different ads because yeah. everyone wants to put their input and they want to put their production in or their company in yeah. there. They're like Han Solo mm-hmm. driving the, uh, flying the Millennium Falcon powered by diesel oil, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and no one can get across the galaxy and ride in the Kessel Run without a Duralast battery, you know? <laughs> no, you got Han Solo in a whole shootout scene, and then he gets hit in the chest. Chewbacca's crying. He's holding him in his arm. He thinks he's dead. And then all of a sudden, he just wakes back up, and he's like, oh, I think I was saved by this Pepsi. <laughs> <laughs> just pulls it out of his coat. <laughs> or, or rather, he's getting shot. Or rather, he's get, he just got shot by a blaster. And he's like, oh. Uh, there's only one thing that can bring me back from the brink of death, and that's a cold six-inch sub from Subway. <laughs> Told, cold turkey melts my favorite. <laughs> like, see, I, I I'm glad that. I don't see that as much in films anymore. Oh, no, no. Like at least they try to keep it in subtle. the background and very subtle. It's not as cr- like gratuitous, like a fucking uh, Michael Bay film. I Michael know, Bay Jesus. Yeah, yeah. He will do it no matter what. That Budweiser bit. Oh yeah. Tra- always no. had me. Like <laughs> no, for some reason that was part of a contract. I, I don't know if it was, yeah, it but up. it sounds very specific for him to do. Like, yeah, you see all these Bud Lights. I need specifically for Mark Wahlberg to drink a Bud Light. Yeah. A Bud Light scene. There you go. Like for some reason, yeah, had to pop. No, they even have, they have the audacity to even have the macro shot. That's right, on the yeah, Bud Light, on the right? Bud Light. Wait for it. Second unit job. So like here, he hops out and then you're going to show all the, fl- look at that. Look at this. Yeah. Damn. Like what the, see, look at that. And look how fast that camera movement. Not even the second unit wants to do it. No. They're like, ah, oh, fuck it. Just get it all. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but look at that. No, no. Let's get to the worst part let's of get, this scene. Yeah. yeah. Like for some reason. Oh, look, there's a Goodyear placement. Yeah. <laughs> An American flag. flag. Always American flag. Always American this flag. This one right here. Look at Where was it? <laughs> Why? For that ad. Do you know why? Because I'm pretty sure Bud Light spent about like a good like four or five million dollars to oh, have yeah. that in there. Yeah. Dude, I mean. They, That's why. I mean, I think that Chevy owns it like exclusively to to Michael Bay films. Really? If you, I don't know. Every one of the movies. It's always like a Chevy. Yeah, right? It's it's always like, yeah. It was a Chevy's and every single shot, it was like six of them lined up driving through the road like a commercial. That's true. See, I hope we don't get that in these new independent films. Do we lucky we can get that? <laughs> Do we lucky we can get like a uh, the Tito's uh, burritos right? sponsorship? The fucking Crunchwrap Supreme from Taco Bell. <laughs> yeah, it is a struggle though as an independent filmmaker to Even actually get, get to get yeah, sponsors yeah, and yeah, funding. Yeah. So, like I said, I am excited that this will help a lot of independent filmmakers finally get their projects and their voices out, and they finally yeah. get the funding that these films definitely need, and yeah. not you know Fast Twenty, Fast Thirty, yeah. Salt. 32, you know? Yeah. yeah. We don't need sequels after sequels. And I think we're finally get to like the calm down of like sequel after sequel after sequel. Well, well, we're getting the calm down, which is a good thing, 
but also a bad thing because whenever these major studios do find, you know, the gem, which mm-hmm. they did with uh, Squid Games. Yeah. You oh, know, they all go towards that. Yeah. Yeah. Which the, it was, uh, you know, a smaller pro. It was, you know, a guy who worked it for what, like 10 years? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. 10 and years. And finally got it made. But that's all he had was that one. Not even, it was supposed to be just a uh, one season or yeah. just one thing, and that's it. Yeah, I hear they're trying to push for a and second they're pushing season. For they, already, they already have a second one. Oh, man. See, they're already pushing for it. They're already, they're already working on a second one. It took one. him 10 years to finish one story. Like, yeah. how fast did he expect the well, development? I think it was because he already had it written, but it took 10 years to, for someone to finally Oh, to no, finally. Okay. But, yeah, but he- So it wasn't something he was working on no, for it, 10 it, years. It was something oh, yeah. he already had worked on, and it took 10 years for someone to finally say, yeah. Yeah, but like, he had it there. He had it, but he only intended to do one thing, and that's it. One season or th- those many episodes. Like that one story. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. Now that, you know, the guy wrote it, he's like, mm-hmm. I'm done with it. Mm-hmm. No, we want more now. They're now demanding this, more, yeah. Now they want more, which means it doesn't end at number two. It en- it ends <laughs> at number seven after you're you know, burnt out already, unfortunately. Uh, this is Netflix, so they do like canceling things really early on. Well, so, like three. I mean- <laughs> Maybe they'll just stop at three. If we're lucky, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I like the first. Well, I, I, I would say the original one. Well, season two. I I'm not too sure. I mean, like, look at Peaky Blinders. That one's on his on its sixth final season. Oh, yeah. Transitioning yeah, into a movie. Yeah, but that was. That's that's not independent, yeah. though. That was backed by the Weinstein Company, my brother. Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that oh, had yeah. Weinstein's money all over that. Is it still Weinstein money? It's still, uh, is it still under the no, or did they so. sell that property? No, Cause no. I know during the auctions, they stole a lot of their IPs when he went to jail. No, um, no, that's one of the IPs that did not belong to the actual, actually to the Weinstein, uh, family okay. or his name. Actually, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. To him directly. Are this just, they're just like what distributor or. Yes. Okay. No, no, there's different things because the Weinstein actually had films as a company that they owned. And there were films that uh, I'm that just ta- I'm, I'm talking about not him personally. I'm just talking about the company. But even though no no, AD, no, no okay, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, AD, yeah. under the um the umbrella of the company yeah. was sold off. There are projects that belong to directly to him. Yeah, they still to him. But I think no, that was one project that was not belong to directly to him. It belonged to the company. Okay, so that was sold off then. Yeah, that was sold off. Okay. Now does he resi- get residuals? I have no clue. Still <laughs> in prison, getting checks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, he did he. As much as he want to sell off his company, if he has his name on those contracts, they're still his. Yeah. He still receives those checks. Yeah, but I don't, that that did not start off. That was, that already had money back to yeah. that. That, no, was, that, that yeah, was a so, big project. I mean, Squid Games, that was more like, hey, this was a small independent thing no one really knew about. Let's just make this into a hit. Yeah. I mean, you got other ones like Parasite. Uh, and I think that's where everyone's looking for. Everyone's looking for their sleeper hits. Yeah. I mean, and hopefully that it just works. Yeah, but that's not every, every studio is kind of like, Okay, the thing that I feel like it might happen is the students would grab all these indie filmmakers, tell them, please make this project. Here's the money. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't work, my biggest fear is some of these people get blacklisted simply because of, you know. I mean, that kind of does happen. And that has been a thing. I mean, think about this new resurgence where like these new franchises or these massive blockbuster films, these directors aren't like. They're, they're not Peter Jackson. They're not Steven Spielberg. These are smaller independent people. Like one thing I want to point out is with, um, oh my goodness, I had the film on top of my head or I lost it. Uh, the Eternals. Mm-hmm. So directed by Chloe Zhao, mm-hmm. but her films prior to that were smaller indie films. 
this was like one of her first like huge big blockbuster. Which uh, indie films was she? Uh, have you seen most No Man Land? That's her most oh, recent one. Yeah. Okay. So that was her. Okay. So she went from No Man Land mm-hmm. to working on Eternals. Mm. Maybe that was too big of a leap. And that's like a huge thing. And that's not something just too new, new. I mean, we even got that with um, Gareth Edwards with the first Godzilla film. I mean, he worked on Monsters, such a low budget, you know, sci-fi monster film. And then all of a sudden, yeah, here's some money from Legendary Pictures. Now work on a Godzilla film. Now, is that the Godzilla film? From 2014. Okay. Yeah, not that one. the uh, not the Matthew Broderick one. Not the Matthew Broderick. No, no, not that. Okay. Yeah. I was like, mm, I'm talking I don't about know that. If I'm count that. One. <laughs> That's on Netflix right now, and I don't know if I count that as a success. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now, now here's actually another thought that I just had. That also these directors, you know, one I think you know uh, with Godzilla, I'm sure he's aware how to you know film with uh, visual effects. Mm-hmm. For visual effects, at least. Oh yeah, you know he's worked with visual effects, so for he knows a very how to film time. for it. Yeah, yeah. The Eternals, on the other hand, was she familiar working with visual effects, or is it she was just? You work on a Marvel film, you don't need to know two shits about visual effects. That's a whole different segment. It's yeah. hard to put Marvel in that category as a standard film because yeah. this is something where they really segment out their processes and the only person who really understands what's the director but the director doesn't even need to fully know he just needs to know that the people who are working on it know what they're doing so you have your whole film process which is just natural filming you get your actors you get their you know stage crew your lighting crew she's used to that environment so she knows how to work with that environment it's probably a lot bigger than what she's used to but she's able to manage that Post-production, that's a whole different but territory. But I'm not talking about post-production. I'm talking about like actually setting up shots for, you know, for a fight sequence or for- Previs. A- that was all too previs. She probably had three, four people who've been working in previsualization for many years now are helping her and guiding her for her shots. If she says she wants to get it, this character looking in this angle, they'll probably give them their suggestions so it'll work well with the effect. Okay. This is a team. These are these are always team bases that they have their people running heads for their directors to give them as much help as possible. All they need from the director is their vision. They'll handle everything else. Okay. And that's why it's different for like Marvel in that sense because it's such different from like any other film studio where they just give you money and they you're like, okay, you got this. You know what you're doing. Okay. Marvel's like, okay, you know, you know what you're doing, but we know what we're doing too. That's how they handle things too. So we're working on this together all the way through. And that's why usually their films become really well made. It's well paced. The plot's good because everyone is well, everyone knows what's happening in the project. And that's where it usually should be. And that's where it needs to be for independent filmmakers. If you want to, if, any major studio or any, you know, angle investor, anyone wants to make money off an independent filmmaker, just let them be a part of the process the entire way through and help them. Don't be impeding. Don't step in their way. Don't, if you're going to hire these people, don't be like, oh, you don't know what you're doing. What's the point? What's the point of hiring somebody? You're going to just treat them like they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that they should do that, but a lot of times it's either, I don't know, it's, it's, it comes like real tricky because you got some studios who'd like, like I said, like that, where, you know, you know what you're doing, so we need to step in here and, you know, have full control over it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you have the other option is like, or the other coin is, you know, 
here's the money, figure it out. Mm. Kind of, you know, no, it looks like you came with idea. You have a good hand on it. So figure it out. Yeah. Which sometimes is a good thing. Sometimes is a bad thing. It all depends. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure there is times where they hire someone new and they just absolutely don't know what they're doing. Oh no. Cause like I said, they get lucky with that one project yeah. they worked on. Yeah. And I mean, unfortunately it's like they worked probably with their friends, uh, you know, people they knew close by real yeah. comfortable and stuff like that. So they're comfortable with that person. And all of a sudden throw into a whole new world where there's, you know, not a single person, you know, personally, mm-hmm. and you're not in control of everything because yeah. you have people doing these things for you and they yeah. need to make sure they're doing everything by your word. It's like, it's, it is a different environment, yeah. but it is something that I am excited to see a lot of these smaller independent, uh, independent filmmakers, like coming into the big screen, into the limelight. I mean, we have this list over here by, um, in the, oh, no, no, this is the wrong list. That one's by Vagon. Vagon? Vagon. Vagon. But yeah, by uh, IndieWire. So it had basically um, a lot of overlooked films from last year that now are coming into limelight for this year. And a lot of students want to pick up on these um, smaller filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So we get people, uh, let's see here. There was one on this list that I specifically saw. That was really intriguing. No, was this? No, it wasn't. Yeah, so um, Test Pattern. I was starting to hear people talk about this. This is a first-time feature filmmaker for Shatara uh, Michelle Ford. So a lot of people were talking about this is like a really, really tough movie that really dived into the whole, like basically everything that's been pent up and going on last few years, you know, sexual Ooh. assaults, allegations, yeah. COVID relationships, racial Divinity. So this is something where we're starting to get a lot of these filmmakers like really hard, heavy, reflecting life hmm. where, you know, I know you don't like it because you like the escapism. Yes. You, you enjoy the escapism, but it's kind of not where things are really going. A lot of people are focusing on the hard hitting, yeah. you know, facts of life. They really want to show everyone has a message right now. Yeah. No, I get it. Why everyone wants a mm. message. Cause in the last few years, every movie has been, you know, mm. I like escapism, but sometimes they went way too far with the escapism. Mm-hmm. They went like, just, you know, you mean almost like fast and furious. Dude, that's like, not even the one that did it. <laughs> that's the, you know, sadly enough, that's not even the ones that set it off. Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about like extreme escapism, which I honestly blame Marvel on that one, uh, where they're just, you know, beyond into a fantasy route. Mm-hmm. Not even like an unrealistic route, but just pure fantasy. Mm-hmm. And some people are just, I understand that people are tired of just the pure fantasy and want to be grounded back to, you know, to real life. Yeah. So I get that why people want to see that now. Well, there's usually a thing where like you get into moments where you get into a recession or anything like that. That's usually where most of the fantasy and, you know, happy go lucky films do come out. But this is a little different because we've been hitting this whole pandemic. People have been more aggressive. Usually you'll think they want these, you know, outliers to go out and just to fantasize and get away from all this stuff. But that doesn't seem to be happening now. No, they want to, they... I mean, this is a theory. It's a shitty theory. I'm not going to lie. It's yeah. an extremely shitty theory, but it is a theory. Do uh, you want to look at someone that unfortunately has a worse life than you? <laughs> so you say, hey, my life is not as bad. These people on film had it way worse than I did. You're thinking that they're looking at these people and like, I don't got it as bad as I can look at this jackass and see what's happening in their life. And you don't really not, feel not, bad because you know they're fictional characters. Not that cruel, but yes. <laughs> something like that. 
<laughs> well, I mean, there are people who do get really that cruel. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So here you go. This is the list I had from IndieWire from before that I was looking up. So here's one. It was all the way towards the bottom of this list that I saw. Wooden Water? Yeah. Wooden Water by Jonas Back. So... This is one of those like slow burner type of films, which you don't really get those right now. Mm-mm. And this deals a lot about heavy material. I mean, it's like I said, it's a lot to do with heavy material right now. And I've been noticing a lot of people for these filmmakers, these independent filmmakers who are starting to come up. A lot of these people do deal with like documentaries and stuff like that too. Which is kind of funny because I feel like this might be a slow transition for like document filmmakers to slowly get into actual, you know, fiction tales. Yeah. But still bring that grounded hard realism of like all the shit they filmed and gone through as a documentary to bring into actual like storytelling. That's an interesting side that I want to see get developed. Because usually if you're a documentary filmmaker, you kind of stay like that. Yeah, because documentary filmmaking. That's like a, a documentary filmmaking. That's a that's a whole other ball game, man. That's that an is. investment in like years, possibility of years. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you are spending meticulous, it's like so much time on a single project. Your that camera's, it's nonstop it's shooting. Non-stop it's nonstop shooting. shooting. Yeah, the rare times it's ever turned off. So that that person is just strapped with batteries. And I think these people can become brilliant filmmakers. I mean, these are the type of people who refuse to miss a shot. I mean, they are the most guerrilla filmmakers out there. Can you imagine if they had the time and patience to sit down and plan a shot? Now, I don't know if they can, though. I mean, I I know. Yeah. It's one of those things where, like, it's almost like I say, like, ADHD, where they just like they 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 haven't they have they have a general idea what they want. And then they just film like hell mm. trying to get it. But you even get this like, okay, so not even like people like Josh Oppenheimer who goes out to like Indonesia and just shoots some serious like political shit. Like what about even like nature documentaries where you see stuff like on Animal Planet, you see how beautiful those shots are? Yeah. Yeah, no, no, no. They're yeah. No, they look gorgeous. Yeah. That takes time to set up. No, that takes time to set up, but- it's like, I don't know. I think those filmmakers are a different beast. Yeah. <laughs> like traditional filmmakers. Like yeah. they, yeah. like everything they do, I think just runs through their head. Like they plan everything out in their head versus, you know, an, you know, a traditional filmmaker, we actually plan on paper and we have to sit there and, you know, plan every shot out. Uh-huh. To them, I don't think they could do that. I don't know if they have the patience to sit there and actually. I think so. I think some of them really can. Because we're even starting to get to the point where we're getting like, beautifully filmed documentary like documentaries no no i think like i said uh, like remember it was just a thing like oh a documentary just you raw dog it out there just go film it and then it just looks shitty it's shaky and then you throw it in and just you just want to get the message out that used to be the thing yeah now they're getting like beautiful shots no no beautiful landscapes like great depth like scenery and just even like their pacing for the storytelling is getting better no, no, they could do that. But when it comes to like actually like what I'm talking about is actually planning out the shots, mm-hmm. the angles. I don't think they have the patience for that. Everything else I think they have perfect patience for. Like except for mm-hmm. the writing, they could definitely do it. Uh pay, uh pacing the pacing on, you know, dialogue, they could definitely do that. Mm-hmm. Uh but actually sit there and like plan things out, I don't think they can. That's that's where I think. Yeah. So like even this like right here that I'm reading with uh 
film Dark uh, Th- Dark Red Forest by director Jin Hawk King. I, I'm, I'm messing up this name. And he's probably from Tibet, but it's about every year, thousands of Tibetan nuns off the Yarkin Monastery head to a rickery wooden home. Oh, to head to rickery wooden homes to set against the yawning backdrop of the Tibetan plateau, where they engage in deep meditation and personal inquiry. And this is like all filmed. Like, can you imagine getting those beautiful shots up in a Tibetan mountain with all these people? I mean, even look at just this picture right here that you get to see. Like, imagine capturing these type of, like, images and everything. Like, that's, wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I feel like that's a different type of filmmaker. Because I, in that I, filmmaking, that's a person that's looking to capture mm-hmm. the motions of life and not being constricted to do, yeah. trying to recreate the same feeling and emotion of paying extras. But I, I, I want to see that though. Like I, I know want, we want to see. I want to see that in a constructed storyline. But I don't think these type of directors are going to want to try and do that because they don't want to try and fake something. I feel yeah. some of them will. I feel like some of them will. Maybe, no, think, some. I, yeah. maybe some. Yeah. But I, I just don't see the possibility of these particular ones that are craving the reality and rawness no, of you're, life. You're talking about like those adrenaline junkies. No, I wouldn't say like the adrenaline no, okay. junkies, yeah. but like the ones that they don't want to have to like plan something out to be, to try and imitate they, something where they can go and see it. For you're, real. You're, okay. So you're talking about like the die hard documentaries, like that is their life. They want to capture the moment. Yeah. Yes. They want to capture the moment. They don't want to yeah. try about and, career documentaries. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. like the difference between like, Oh, like being out in the water and watching a, a great white shark break, you know, for the first time while catching a seal versus like, oh, we can, yeah, we can recreate that with CG and practical effects. You know, it's, it's not the same. But, yeah, it would look cool as shit probably. But that, that's not like every, you know, person who works in documentaries. No, but that's I mean, not, yeah. and I'm not saying it's like every single person, but you have the ones that die hard, but it's like they don't want to be stuck behind the yeah. desk. They yeah. don't want to be stuck in the studio or the lot. They don't. While other ones, like, that's something we would want to do. Oh, yeah, definitely. But these ones are the ones where it's like, dude, I've fucking seen the world. You know, I'm, I'm climbed mountains. You know, I've met people. You know, I don't, like, I've been in the streets when Egypt was in fucking rioting, you know? Yeah. But those are the people who actually get their stuff watched. Like, I'm talking about, like, those people who, like, they go out to, like, the Amazon forest to shoot for, like, a year and a half, and they get beautiful shots, beautiful series. It took them another year and a half to finally edit this thing just for, like, 15 people to watch it. Mm, like, you yeah. see, like, there's how many documentaries come out every year, and how Plus. many do actually get, actually, you know, in Picked the spotlight. Up. Yeah. I mean, there's a... There's and I'm pretty sure a lot of those are really well made. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, so, okay. What I meant by the whole, like, throughout the patience is uh, kind of what Michael said earlier. It's just that a little bit of both where it's like, a, not a junkie, but mm. they capture the moment and the, all they they know is they only have one shot to take that, you know. Yeah. That, that yeah. one moment to that get that one shot moment. and that's it. Yeah. So they, you know, not, I'm not saying they're stressing out, but they just know it. this is the one time they got it and that's it. Yeah. Put them in a film setting where they know they have multiple takes. Mm-hmm. They get, I they think can it, take it multiple times. Like it just, yeah, it takes the magic right. out. It takes the magic away from them. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, so we, I said maybe, yeah. maybe, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I was like, is there any like independent filmmakers you can think of that are like starting to come up or independent films or even shows that you know are going to be coming out this year that you're like, you're excited for? Oh man, there's a couple. Let's see. Uh, 
Damn it. I, I mean, I I love the Planet Earth mm-hmm. documentaries. Yeah. I love the way they're shot, the way they're done. David Attenborough never fails me. <laughs> so whenever there's whenever there's something new that comes out, yeah. like uh like life or uh our planet, anything like that, I'm I'm all for it. You're gonna be like, all I, for I, that. I love those. If there were, if there was ever a dream job I've ever wanted to do, it would be like a cinematographer for uh for BBC for Animal or for Planet Earth. I think that would be the coolest thing to do. Oh yeah, that would be incredible, amazing. Like job. I think that would be the most coolest. But then at the same time, I see how some of those close-up shots that you see of like um of like how you know how you, of certain birds or like certain creatures, how they're like mm-hmm. in a close confinement. And somehow it's like, it's almost like the cameraman's like on his stomach, like recording. And I'm like, oh my God, like, how does he get this wide yeah. shot? And then somebody putting up like, oh yeah, these kind of shots are actually filmed somewhere like in a closed set. <laughs> and then it's like, they built the environment right. around it. And then they just let them do their thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, shit, that just totally <laughs> takes me out of it. <laughs> like, fuck me. It's like, damn. No, you know what's also something before we close that out? I just now completely remember this is also something that's starting to become a resurgent is the anime movie is returning and becoming popular. Like, so I'm talking about like where Demon Slayer, the film. Okay. Outbeating and outperforming Godzilla versus King Kong. You know, shit like that. Yeah. Where it's, it's, I think now considered the most financially successful anime film of all time. It beat out, um... Like everyone oh got to see that. It was crazy popular. Who's who's the uh, famous di- who's the famous director who did uh like Howl's Moving Castle and uh, uh My Neighbor? Oh my goodness. Oh my god, his name uh has H in there. Yeah. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. I me too. I'm wow, po- I feel so ashamed. I know. Me too. I'm <sighs> Ghibli. Miyazaki. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he I think uh that Demon Slayer movie even beat out like his, even his record. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He was holding that record for quite some time, right? Yeah. Yeah. He was holding it in Japan. Yeah. Man, it's, it's crazy. Like, did you see Demon Slayer, Mike? Yeah, it was dope. We could trade. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. It was, like I said, unfoldable, man. Those clean animations. Yeah. That's why I like animations for that particular one. I can't watch it in sub. I got to watch dub because I don't want to, I don't want to waste the time, time reading, reading when you're missing all when the I'm missing all the, yeah. yeah. I want to I want to see the beautiful the beautiful visual, visualizations, you know, all the animation and watching the smoothness of it all. Oh, like I don't want to miss nothing. It's great. It's you, great. You want to know my theory why those movies are become more popular? Uh, why? I have a theory. It's a stupid theory, but it's a theory. Uh, why? Because all the older people who said, you know, pretty much consider cartoon, you know, those considered a cartoon and cartoons are for kids. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, pretty much anyone that grew up in this era is now, you know, in their 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we, we grew up during the anime yeah. Western 90s boom in the 90s. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when all that stuff was just being blasted, you got Trigun, you got Show, Dragon Ball Z. Yeah. I mean, technically, uh, technically, even like Naruto came out was yeah. like 95, 96. Yeah. Like, yeah, it like came late, out right there. late 90, almost. Yeah, early I mean, that was the anime boom right yeah. there. Yeah. But, but the point I'm trying to make is like, you're, like even us, when we were in high school watching mm-hmm. those, those mm-hmm. anime, we were kids watching it. Yeah. You know, it was still considered, you know, anyone who had no knowledge of what they were, all they just saw the images. Mm-hmm. It was, they just saw it was a kid show. Like childish. Yeah, it was childish. You know, Dragon Ball was considered childish. You know, uh, hell, even Death Note was considered childish because you just saw 
an animated series. Yeah. And now as we're adults, you know, now there's our bread and butter. And yeah. we're like, this is... Well, anime itself in Western society, it's gone through some, especially in America, it's gone through some changes. So it did first start off where like, Anyone caught seeing this is like, oh, you're watching this kid's cartoon. You're yeah, such a kid all the You're stuff. automatically like. When it started becoming more popular and more prevalent, especially the fan servicey shit started coming around. Yeah. It's now like, oh, you like anime. Do you watch that weird cartoon porn? That's where it transitioned from. So it's no longer your child. Yeah. You're a fucking weirdo now for watching this. Yes. Now it's getting to the point where it's respectable. Because it's yeah. starting like, to get oh. respectable. Like, like, like you hey. got shows like Attack on Titan where, you know, once you start getting rid of no. ass and titties out of all of these shots, yeah. it starts becoming oh, no. respectable. Yes. But it becomes respectable. Like I say, in my, in my line of work, when I seen cars, uh-huh. Dude, when I say anime stickers on all these cars, cringe. none of them are like of Naruto or of the symbols. No, no, no. These are just titties. Just ass titties. Just titties all over this yeah. car. Even that one car where we used to live in the apartments. Mm-hmm. It was just a waifu mobile. Oh yeah, the waifu mobile we saw. I'm like, that's just cringe. It was See, wrapped. It's, it's, it's that type of shit that like basically, like, oh, hey, you know what? I think what show you might really like would be Death Note. You know, it's a good place to start. If you like criminal dramas, like those like detective and criminal uh cases if you, if you like law and order anything like that i think you might like this one yeah yo check out this one this gun's got titties the size of my head bro <laughs> i'd be like well shit man this is why you fucking this is why i got a bad rep man that's why i don't tell you this shit like god damn it, it but it had that stigma because you had the weirdos that were like that <laughs> and i'm like man dude shut up so i'm glad that it's starting to get into this respectful age where you're starting to get people actually going to the theaters adults i mean they really what my hero film too yes and yeah that did great as well i mean i'm pretty yeah. sure yeah that did really I mean, well the, i i had ashley starting to watch um my hero mm-hmm. so i had her on death note and then i got started on my hero loves it mm. and then she just found out that there were movies and she was like there's movies <laughs> it's like you've been holding out on me so i gotta i gotta find a way to find those movies mm. for her. but yeah like but they're fucking great. I mean, but it also has to do with like, because we've been in this game for fucking since the beginning, mm-hmm. since the boom. Yeah. So I mean, so we can watch the low quality shit and still be enjoyable because we can enjoy the plot. But for those that are mm-hmm. like barely jumping in now, mm-hmm. you got to have that crisp, super clean animation. Yeah. The, the kind of where it's like, whoa, like absolutely mind boggling, like Demon Slayer or Attack on yeah. Titan, you know, but that's, that's the only way they're going to be drawn in. But that's why I really hope like a lot of these anime movies will bring prevalence for more studios to pick up on independent writers work. I mean, think mm-hmm. what happened to one, the creator of One Punch Man. Mm. He had a really crappily drawn webtoon yeah, series that got picked up by a serious anime manga artist, became a hit. And then eventually got picked up by a studio to have its own show that also became a hit. And also has fucking some of the cleanest animation. Exactly. But like I say, it comes back to the whole idea of like a studio taking that risk. That risk, yeah. And I mean, I gotta bring up just if no one's seen the original webcomic for One Punch Man. It's so fucking cheesy. (laughs) Like, oh my goodness, the drawings are bad. It's doodles. It's doodles. It's basically doodles doodles on a napkin. It really is. They're they're napkin doodles that this guy just made. So you have some that are so like, yeah, oh, whoa. This is like, yeah, there actual real. Here he goes. That's. This is how the creator One Punch Man originally drew it. What was the name of that video game that was like uh, 
slap chop like onion or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Fucking, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. That's what those doodles remind me of. Well, yeah, look at the difference. Yeah. Just huge difference. That's the, it's the beginning stages of a storyboard. Mm. Yeah. And it did not matter about the artwork and everything. It was just the story that yeah. mattered. But it takes, like I say, it takes a person who understands the art they're trying to put mm-hmm. out. Yeah. And for them to, you know, to see past the, you know, the shit. Basically on filmmaking. When mm-hmm. when I'm filmmaking, when you're trying to make a short film and it's done really bad, but there's a story behind it. Yeah. You know, it takes a good producer or a good, you know, executive to see past, you know, the, the crappy filming to see, you know, this is a good story and we could work with something here. Mm. Yeah. And it does take that risk. You know, the so studio has to take that risk when seeing that. Like, it yeah. happened with this one. Mm-hmm. They took that risk on this crappily drawn cartoon. Mm-hmm. Saw it's, you know, the, the, the potential. The potential and just. They went with it. Blew up. It blew can you show up some, Can you pull up some of like the, the clean animation for like uh, One Punch Man? Oh, dude. Okay. Hell yeah. Like, was Saitama versus Genos. Oh, you're reading my mind. See? You're reading my mind. That one has some of the cleanest <sighs> animations to yeah, date. Before we close out, I want to put this up on I here, just, and know. then we'll put this in a link for everyone to watch this. I mean, they can't even really see this, but I it's, wish they could. Man, oh, because yeah, it's yeah, yeah, no, so yeah. clean. We'll have this up for a video portion so you guys can see this, and this is in sixty this frames. Is, yeah, sixty frames a second. So it's in like animation. It, it's so well drawn. It's such well paced animation. Like this, this is, alone, the slow motion just. Look at that. Clean. It's so clean. And like I said, this started off as a terribly drawn webcomic. Yeah. You don't even need to be a, a fan of anime to just be like, damn, this is kind of cool. Yeah. Like, oh shit. Like I said, you don't even need to know anything about this Man. show or anything and just watch this and just be amazed. Exactly. And we definitely need more of that. I mean, there was that clip even before we sh- um, started with the podcast you showed for the Ninja Turtles. Yeah, dude. Yeah. See, that's an example right there. So like one of the, the newer Ninja Turtle shows, or I guess like era, I guess you would call it, remake, mm-hmm. redo, fucking whatever. They go through like 20,000 different remakes. Yeah. Versus Shredder. point is the, the latest one has that same anime element fight style. Yeah. Dialogue is weak and cartoony as shit. And this is on Nickelodeon. <laughs> Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon. And I saw things. this and I was like, yo, I was like, whoa. Oh shit. Look at that. That's just <laughs> Look insane. at this. They're just moving all over the place. This is like another 60 frames a second fight sequence. I'm like, dude, if I had known this existed, I would have watched this earlier. <laughs> this shit is sli- this it is fucking dope. <laughs> Do you think this is gonna start another anime craze? It just might. I, I, I think it, might. it will push more American animators to Too. go for this type of style. Yeah. Because it's like, bro, how can you not? Like, it's intense, man. I'm like, damn. Let's go. Let's go, man. <laughs> Let's fucking go. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're missing out. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually a little excited, though, for this year and everything that's going to be coming out. Mm-hmm. So, hopefully, like... I'm I'm gonna step not step away, but I'm not gonna focus too much on just the blockbusters this year because I know what's gonna happen, mm-hmm. especially with the Warner Brothers if they're still gonna be continuing their trend with you know same day release. We know though 
those are just going to do everything's going to be financially bad. So I'm kind of like excited to actually start seeing some positive numbers from studios again yeah. and not just yeah. see everything hitting in the red. And I think we're going to be getting that with these independent films. Mm-hmm. I really hope so. I yeah. really, really hope so. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's going to be a good place to close tonight's topic. What do you think about the new resurgence for independent filmmakers? Are you guys excited or you just buy, you just want your blockbusters? That's all you care about. You can leave a comment below if you're watching this on the Next Journey YouTube channel. If not, we'll be putting this up on an open forum on our website at www.nextjourneypro.com forward slash Red Band Podcast for our listeners to discuss episode topics and various other film related news. We put out episodes every Friday. For our audio listeners, you can find the Red Band Podcast on iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, and of course our website, which I'll say again, www.nextjourneypro.com forward slash Red Band Podcast. And as usual, before we close, Michael will have his little end notes and tags for you guys. Exactly. Yes. Like he was mentioned before, you can find us anywhere on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify. You can find us on Amazon Music, even YouTube. If you enjoy these audios and you kind of want to see what we look like on the uh, on the video spectrum, you can always dabble your way on over there. Uh, like and subscribe down there. Consider sharing with some of your friends and uh, maybe leave a comment down below and uh, about a request of a certain topic maybe you think we missed or that you want us to kind of cover. Also, take a look at our Patreon. More yep. subscribers means more content for you. And each subscription has usually a different little bundle. Maybe get like a cool little signature uh, from each one of us. Maybe get a cool handwritten letter. Even get actually get an open form or even closed form or personal message directly to us. Find out what kind of topics you think we should actually go for. And as well as having a pretty much a person in our ear to tell us how we'd like to do it. Uh, basically, subscribe. Let it know to your friends. More subscribers means more content. So, yes. So give that a look. Awesome. You guys hear from Mike. Please like and subscribe and we'll see you next time. Later, taters.